0: As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Ali McLean, current Senior Producer at Mighty Kingdom and CEO of The Working Lunch. So join us as we explore our journey. So, today I'm joined by Ali. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, fantastic. Keeping busy, but fantastic. So, it's just another day, I suppose.
1: Classic Wednesday.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, thank you very, very much for coming aboard the show today. We are recording this. As as the Twitter world will know in the next five to ten minutes or so, because I've scheduled a post here, um, that uh, <laughs> you're you're coming on the show today, and it's it's coming in really really hot. This is less than twelve episodes, uh, sorry, twelve hours away from going live. So wow. I really really appreciate the fact that we've managed to put all this together in, in lightning fashion, and everyone's going to get to enjoy it really really soon. No delays. There's not going to be any questions regarding outdated information it's going to be as fresh (laughs) as you can possibly get it so thank you very much for making this happen
1: no worries no thank you for having me
0: and this is dev diary a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry they share their stories their experiences and the journey that's led to this particular point now you've got some fantastic really fascinating different pathways that you've pursued um It's really, really interesting. I'm really looking forward to getting into all of that. But before we get to that particular side of things, I think we should probably explore where the the love of games first began and some of your first gaming experiences. Do you recall what the first game was that you played?
1: Oh, I don't know specifically what the first game was. So I grew up with two older brothers who were five and six years older than me. And so gaming was just always kind of happening in our home. And so I think that... uh, Probably my first gaming experiences were something like being handed a controller that was not plugged into a Nintendo 64, you know, (laughs) so I don't remember specifically which games, but I do remember that the experience was largely about bonding with my siblings and then that grew into shared experiences with my friends and, you know, people that I loved and that's been really the theme of games for me has been all about connection.
0: I'm certainly learning a little bit about the whole give them a control that's not connected and plugged in thing now with a, <laughs> with a with a two-year-old, though he's very, very good with that PlayStation button. He knows exactly what to press to make it work. so <laughs>
1: It's a classic move.
0: I guess, I guess we were all far too simple back in the day because yeah, pe- like family would try and play the same tricks on me and I'd fall for it, but I don't know. Maybe my son's just a wonder child. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> or we- or... maybe you have
1: a baby genius.
0: Yeah, I could. <laughs> um, were there any particular uh, games or franchises that you really attached yourself to that you grew to love? As you were growing up?
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember I have really fond memories of playing and watching people play the Zelda franchise. I, and oh, that's good. definitely pretty deeply rooted in my soul. Uh, but I think probably one of my most vivid early gaming memories is all about The Sims. And oh, yes. I, I mean, I still love those games. I still think that they're such an achievement, such an accomplishment. They occupy... Such an important part of the industry and a niche that is so deeply underserved. But for me, I mean, I used to literally run home from school with my best friend, Katie, to get to my brother's computer before he would get home from school. So that because it was the only PC in the house that could run The Sims 2. (laughs)
0: So
1: we would try and beat him to it and we would just play for hours and hours and hours. And it was all about, you know, creative expression and storytelling and you know, fantasy and just everything that, that I think games can be, it really started with The Sims for me.
0: Sounds like we had a similar story in that particular regard. Um, my sisters never got massively into games in, in those early years anyway. These days they'll they'll dabble a little bit, but The Sims was that one thing that they really attached themselves to. And so much like you, it became this race to the computer, to, you know, whoever'd get there first after school or or whatever the case happened to be. And just first in best rest and that's it, dibs and it was over for everyone else and <laughs> Yeah, I think it was it was that and I think Pokemon were about the two ones that pe- everyone had kind of attached themselves to and it was just if you got it, you got it, and if you didn't, you're gonna have to go find something else to do and a lot never... of
1: time playing Pokemon on the Game Boy Color under the covers, pretending I was reading or <laughs> something else useful.
0: <laughs> familiar story. <laughs> So how did your tastes kind of develop from there? As as you grew up, were there any particular genres or franchises that you continue to associate with?
1: It's funny. I have never really associated particularly strongly with a, a genre or a particular style of game. I think that I just kind of gravitate towards experiences that are you know, meaningful to me in some way. Um, so You know, Bioshock Infinite was a big one for me. It came out kind of around the time that I moved out of home for the first time, and I think that's one of the games that really helped develop my sense of what I wanted to do in the industry and the kind of stories that I wanted to tell. Yes. Uh, And it's just so visually stunning and beautiful, and, yeah, Bioshock was a big one.
0: Well, that is, as you said yourself, that's a really important part of the beginning of everything here because... Uh, as we start to kind of move into your time in the industry in various dis- different capacities, as I mentioned before, um, there was a, there was a phase there where cosplay was kind of you were really quite well known for your for your work in the cos- cosplay space, and Bioshock was amongst that. There was um, uh, the Witcher and, se- and several different uh, franchises. That you were well known for your your takes on uh, essentially. How did that actually begin for you in the first place? And i mean i think of everyone that i've had on the show far as sorry everyone i've had on the show so far i don't think cosplay is necessarily featured at all at this point so it makes for a very (laughs) unique sort of pathway in
1: oh god who knows (laughs) um i i used to cosplay as a kid i used to go to conventions with my older brothers and always been a creative person. I went to fashion school when I graduated high school. Fashion was everything that I wanted to do. You know, always been making things and cosplay was just kind of a really natural hobby extension of loving to make things, loving video games, loving movies, comic books, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I always looked at costumes and just loved the you know thinking about the fabrics and the construction and the, the processes and how they were made and how something comes together into just a cohesive thing um and so i got really into cosplay as a hobby and then i was really really lucky basically <laughs> the
0: right time right place
1: there was a period of time where um You know, now I think cosplay and like online influencers and streamers and like all of that is just sort of a very well known, accepted part of the culture. But I sound like such an old woman. I'm not that old. But but back then. uh, But certainly
0: you're right, you're right though. The climate was a bit different in that regard and the way it was. It was very different. A
1: lot of people didn't even know what cosplay was. It was sort of a very fringe thing. And so I was just there and I had time and energy. And I was really excited about the community at a time where it was really blowing up and also where the idea of like having a Facebook page where people would follow stuff that you make was kind of a new and novel idea. And so I put started putting my cosplay stuff up online and it just sort of exploded into, you know, this community of people with shared interests and a real, really important, quite powerful creative outlet for me.
0: Yeah, and I mean, outside of, being just that and a creative outlet and somewhere where you could really express your your love of certain characters or franchises or whatever, it also led to some some opportunities. And so I mentioned, obviously, The Witcher there, so CD Project, uh, was was a party that you worked with for a while there. How did those conversations, how did those opportunities first emerge?
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the benefits of kind of being – amongst the beginning of a real shift in culture and the way that we think about online communities was that I developed quite a lot of expertise around what those communities liked and didn't like and the way that they operated and how to reach them and connect with them. And that was really valuable to people trying to market things like video games. And so I would work with companies like CD Projekt Red, who were uh, you know, one of the companies I worked with for the longest period of time, uh, marketing the witcher 3 and gwent and all that kind of good stuff i worked with them kind of on building cosplay communities i worked with them on events and cosplay competitions i got to travel the world and do all kinds of wild cosplay activities <laughs> and yeah no it was really really special
0: that, yeah it's a really fascinating uh, way to firstly you know get into the industry but it's a it's a really as you mentioned before the the time that you actually got into it it's a It's a really exciting, rapidly changing sort of space. Um, And I'm sure you met a lot of really, really great people that were also working on the cosplay side of things, but also within these various companies that you're working with as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that that was such an important formative time for me, you know, as as a person and as a creative and as a young professional, because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I got exposed to a lot of different aspects of the games industry, you know, good and bad, uh, and got to meet a lot of really great people who were very inspiring. I met people like one of my closest friends, Ray Johnston, I met through cosplay, and she ended up just being a really important mentor and teacher for me in terms of how the game's landscape worked. Um, And other people like Megan Marie, who's also was really important and inspiring for me. She sort of was forging her own career in community management and writing on the Tomb Raider series. And yeah, I met her through doing photo shoots together in LA and just lots of really awesome creative people were in that space at the time.
0: Yeah, and it led to a ton of great opportunities and it's a fantastic starting point. But when did you know that, maybe that chapter was done and you needed to explore something else I mean as as we continue to move through your career you've I guess there's a degree of transiency you've moved through a few different roles a few different jobs and worked with lots and lots of different people over the journey and I guess stepping away from that persona and that role I I assume it wasn't an instant you know I woke up one morning and I've fallen out of love with this I'm I'm sure there might have been some build-up or maybe just the right opportunity how did that ultimately come to an end or even start to come to an end
1: hmm. yeah Um. I think the way that I've made decisions about my career has really been always trying to move towards the things that I love And the things that I love change and evolve all the time, you know, as I grow as a person, as a human being, but also as I grow as a creative and as a professional, and I look for new challenges and things that excite me. And I really got to do everything I could have possibly dreamed of getting to do in cosplay, like beyond my wildest dreams, getting to travel the world and make lifelong friends, getting to make really ambitious creative projects, you know, getting to work with companies who make games that I love and all kinds of things like that um, I really never thought that I would get to do anything like that when I was you know 15 and hot gluing plastic leaves onto a corset <laughs> <you know? laughs> and so oh, but
0: why, why would you either as yeah. you said yourself the landscape same changed so rapidly
1: it just wasn't a thing um, and so I really just fulfilled my dreams when it came to cosplay and you know what while that was kind of winding down for me I was also falling in love with making games and the idea of working in game studios more permanently and I was really lucky to get a job uh that was not directly in games but was kind of adjacent to it working in marketing for a fashion company that did a bunch of licensed uh things like leggings everyone was kind of similar to black milk did that like star wars collection kind of similar brand to that but australian based and so i ended up packing up my life moving up to queensland for that opportunity which was really my foot in the door to get a marketing job in games um and it worked out for me because i spent just over six months at that company and then i got a job in games
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh, that that opportunity in fashion there seems so you know it's not something I necessarily had noted as I was as I was trawling through LinkedIn for example it wasn't one of the things that actually popped up for uh, for whatever <laughs> reason but with with that little piece of information injected into it it makes so much more sense for everything at this point because yeah you've got all this experience with games and. Uh, as we move towards hammerfall being the next the next step in terms of the game side of things and you were working in a bit of uh, communications and pr in that space too you've managed to th- there's that transition that you can see in the 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 key chink in the middle of that chain is is that one experience so that that's really really fascinating And um, so
1: it makes me kind of emotional thinking about it because it was <laughs> you know it was such a big change going from working for myself out of like a spare room making costumes and, and trying to sell prints and trying to sort of hustle and go to events all around the world and try and make money and, and sustain myself and then the idea of moving to a totally different city where I didn't know anybody to work in a kind of job I'd never done before it was such a big gamble uh, and I was so so grateful that it paid off and sort of led to the dream for me.
0: Was it an obvious yes decision for you at the time or was it something you were still really wrestling with when it came to making that fashion decision?
1: I was really scared and I was really wrestling with it. I remember um, I was doing, I can't remember what convention it was, but I was doing some kind of tour with an Australian convention and you know the highlights of doing those kind of tours for me other than obviously all of the wonderful experiences you have at the event is, <laughs> is the uh the breakfast buffet conversations you have with the people <laughs> on the tour <laughs> and so I remember sitting across from somebody on the tour and just saying I don't want to go like I don't want to move I, I'm so scared like what if I get there and I'm not good at the job what if I get there and I can't make friends like what am I gonna do I just remember being so so scared and so worried about it uh, but I'm so glad that i I did it. I was that it brave. Out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that led to, as as you mentioned before, your first um, stint in the industry in a in a totally different capacity. Actually, kind of working behind the scenes on the games, as opposed to a, a very front front facing role such as the cosplay. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, communications and PR with Hammerfall. Mm-hmm. How did that opportunity first emerge?
1: <laughs> so I posted on Facebook that I was really hoping to get a full-time job in games. and
0: Not even being subtle about it. (laughs) I was just
1: like somebody. Uh, And uh, a friend who I knew through cosplay had been to a wedding with a guy who worked at a game studio and he happened to be looking to hire somebody to do marketing and social media and community management. Uh, And that's how I got the job at Hammerfall.
0: Wow, it kind of <laughs> fell into your lap in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had to. I was living in Brisbane at the time, and I had to fly to Sydney to interview and do all that kind of stuff. But it ended up working out.
0: No, that's that's fantastic. It, it, it for a while there, it sounded like one of those uh, "I know a guy at Nintendo" sort of yeah. things that everyone just kind of goes, <laughs> yeah, "Yeah, okay, sure, sure, you do." And it, it genuinely just fell into like perfectly. That's that's awesome. So, what was that adjustment like? Um, moving back and. Um, getting into the industry that for the longest time you'd you'd been involved with in a totally different capacity but you you'd stepped away from what was that like kind of inserting yourself back into it again?
1: I remember being so happy and so excited on my first day and just feeling like oh I've finally done it you know <laughs> like after after several years of you know, Taking every opportunity that I could, going to every single networking event that I could get into, sleeping on people's floors, sleeping in bathtubs, you know, trying to get uh, build a network within the games industry and make connections with people, and you know, trying to have myself be taken seriously because as somebody who whose job it was to dress up and do photo shoots, you know, there was certainly. a a percentage of people who didn't see me as a serious contender for a real job in the games industry so yeah. I really felt like I've done it.
0: Uh, yeah breaking down a stigma would have been at least something that you were having to consider along the way.
1: Yes yeah it was definitely a part of the experience.
0: Well I'm I'm thrilled that you obviously ultimately did that because as I now look at three quarters of the stuff I've still got written here in my book for the remainder of this episode. <laughs> there's a ton of really awesome things that you've done since. Uh, so what was that time at Hammerfall like? Because it lasts a few years and it spun off into the, the work that you did with Robot House and Rumu, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of really fascinating things that have all spawned from that key point. So what was that like?
1: Chaotic. it was I was so lucky to have that opportunity with you know no games industry experience to be able to come in and be in this kind of fertile ground where and I think a lot of people who have worked in like indie development or like startup culture I think would relate to the experience where it was sort of like everyone was just doing everything Uh, and so that meant that I got to try a lot of different things and build a lot of different skills and you know with that kind of environment also comes a certain amount of chaos, which I've learned yeah, to thrive imagine. in as your game development is almost always chaos.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean again we mentioned before you you came in and in comms and PR, but as you said yourself, like the the nature of the the indie scene, this I won't go as far as say especially locally, but there's certainly a, a heavy component of it locally. It is you. You start to become a, a jack of all trades in many ways, and you dabble in different disciplines and experience different things. And I'd imagine that would have been really, really exciting for you.
1: It was, and I think it was also probably the first time that I really saw the value of the skills that I'd built through cosplay and through working at that fashion company and all of the different kind of. Bits and pieces that I'd been doing, trying to get that first job, I really kind of saw the value that they could bring to a company, and so that was super exciting for me because I thought, oh, I can kind of see a bit of what my future might look like.
0: Were you worried at some point again? I guess maybe you would have you would have heard some of those maybe misguided comments around the the cosplay side of things. Did that I don't know impact you in some way? You thought, well, I'm bringing nothing with me. Like I, I've lucked out and I've managed to get this position. Was there was there any, like, just that voice in the back of the head uh, that was placing a lot of doubt in there?
1: Yeah, I think when I try and sort of think back to the young woman that I was at that moment in time, I do remember a lot of insecurity and a lot of self-doubt and... You know, it was a totally new challenge, a totally different kind of environment than I was used to. I'd never made a game before. I'd never opened a game engine before, <laughs> you know, and it's it was a scary a, thing. It was very scary. And uh, and there was it being a small company, there was not a huge amount of structure. You know, There wasn't a big safety net. So yep. you had to learn very quickly and adapt very quickly. Uh, which, if you keep busy enough, it kind of keeps that imposter syndrome at bay to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, okay. You don't yeah. get you don't get time to let it in.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't let the dread set in.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, you mentioned there's a variety of different roles you took on there. Uh, plastic wax is something that was uh, a feature along the way. What was that like?
1: Plastic wax uh, was. Yeah, it was a par- in parallel to working at Hammerfall. So I didn't work there a whole lot. We were all sort of in the same building. So it was yep. more kind of supporting, you know, their VFX studio. I know at the time, I remember when I first started there, Plastic Wax were working on the trailer for Lego Star Wars. And that was oh, okay. so cool to me and so exciting to me because, you know, it was just after The Force Awakens had come out. I'm such a big Star Wars fan. I loved The Force Awakens and I love Lego Star Wars and I think it was my first kind of sense that, you know, this is an industry where you really can get to touch all of the stories and characters and iconic kind of franchises that shape who you are creatively. Yeah. And yeah, I remember being really inspired by that.
0: It was one of those things where, like, I mean, there's only a few degrees of separation between people in yeah. this industry, and I guess the same applies to the franchises that you love and you've yeah. seen that firsthand.
1: I remember my boss at the time telling me that J.J. Abrams had final sign-off on that trailer and just being like, ah!
0: oh. <laughs> I'm suddenly quite jealous. <laughs> so as as a part of that period, and as, as you said, it was kind of within that kind of two-year window there that you were kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit. But within that time at Hammerfall, Hammerfall was quite known for, for Warhammer 40k regicide and mm-hmm. basically licensed related IP. So my question is, how did Robot House actually spin off of it? How did you manage to pitch that in such a way that people would take to it, um, that would be embraced and it actually managed to, to get up on its feet? And Rumu obviously was what became of that. How did that begin, how that conversation began?
1: <laughs> It's It's kind of wild that it happened it makes no sense like when i when i look back on it now i actually have no idea how that
0: does any any good story ever make sense
1: (laughs) (laughs) um essentially dane madams who was our um, i think his title was like executive vice president or something like that at the time he worked at plastic wax um and he also worked with us on hammerfall so i reported directly to him and he just loves games and loves storytelling and has a real passion for um, unique stories, basically, and stories with a lot of heart. And I think he always wanted to create original stories and create something that was, you know, very handmade and very different to the kind of titles that we were working on at Hammerfall, as much as as those were great, also just something very different. And so... We shared that passion and we talked about it a lot. And so then when there was an opportunity internally to get some investment to work on something new, I think we all kind of knew the direction that we wanted to go in in our heart.
0: Was the idea already... Was there a seed of that idea that became rumour already gestating somewhere or, and it was just the, the right opportunity that needed no, to come along or?
1: No, it, it wasn't a pitch that existed. Basically that we had a big pitch session where everybody in the company had the opportunity to like put something in the hat basically. And then you could pitch it to the whole group, but you had to do it. in I think it was like a minute or something like that. Ooh. And it was very informal. Like it didn't feel like a stressful situation because we all knew each other so well, so it was literally just like pieces of paper, tiny pieces of folded up paper, torn out of a notebook, and people would write their idea on it and throw it in. And then <laughs> someone would pull it out and you would say what your idea was. And so my, one of my ideas was from Roomba with Love. And it was this idea for a robot vacuum cleaner espionage game. Uh, and the whole team really took to it. And it wasn't much of a formulated idea other than, like, I thought robot vacuum cleaners were cute and cool and that they lended themselves really well to some kind of isometric style. Uh, And the team really took it and ran with it and turned it into rumour as a pitch. Uh, And that was really, it was a whole team effort. It was, like, myself, Adam Matthews, uh, alex ferguson daniel rosser and dane madams i think were the original team that were there at the time and i think everybody's fingerprints were all over the Rumu pitch by the time it actually became a fully formed idea
0: well it was certainly one that like you could see the passion in in the product and i i think about the first time that you would not remember me at all but it, it was at pax one you and you were presenting it there at the time and you could see from you and the others at the t- in the team that were there presenting at the time. You could see the the love that was that you all had for the project and the idea, and it, it shone through so clearly at the time. Um, but ultimately, you know, it all came together in, I guess you, you could say, a, a shortish sort of period. Um, <laughs> yes. So, what was that like? Is it all kind of it just because this is not some in my eyes looking at it purely on the consumer perspective this is not some rushed cobbled together sort of thing that just we shoved out into the world and it just happened to you know strike uh, strike rich or you know do well it it's, it's just it's, it's really hard to describe but you can see all this love and passion in it. it um but it all still came together in such a short time so what was that like as all these puzzle pieces i guess just started slotting into place
1: yeah, honestly I had no idea how to make a game like that. And I think that if, if I did know at, at at the outset then we probably would never have made it because we didn't we were just we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we just kind of blindly set out on this journey. We had an idea of like okay, this this many months for pre-production um, this many months for alpha uh, but it's just a total garbage roadmap that didn't make any sense and was based on nothing. <laughs> and so uh, it was really just sheer determination, <laughs> I think, from the whole team.
0: And probably that stumbling blind again, as you said, not knowing what you what you don't know, probably worked to your benefit in some ways. Where it's just it's yeah. totally fueled by passion for the project and maybe nothing else.
1: one of those things i think a lot of people who have made passion projects can probably relate to the feeling of like i'm incredibly proud of the game that we made i'm so so glad that we made it i have lifelong friendships with all the people that i worked on the game with it was so formative for me i feel like it's a piece of my soul that i got to package up and put out there and every time i meet someone who's played it i feel like we know each other (laughs) you know uh and and yet as a producer when i look back on it i just think oh god if we if we had known if we'd done a few things differently if we could if we could change things we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of heartache and a lot of late nights <laughs> but yeah it was such a special project to me and really is such a big part of uh, my heart is in that game
0: well, well like i said it was it was blatantly obvious to i think well certainly to myself and presumably everyone else that saw you that year at PAX that there was a lot of love for the project <laughs> What was that like for you basically being on the other side of things? You obviously you'd obviously attended plenty of conventions as we spoke about before. You're now attending one working there, but in a very, very different capacity. What was that adjustment like in, in those sort of scenarios?
1: I I get kind of teary when I think about that PAX, because we announced Rumu the day before PAX, and so nobody knew what we were working on until PAX. And so then you know We had no idea whether people were going to like it or whether people would write it off. We didn't, we had never, we'd done no like user testing or anything. We had no read on whether anyone but us was going to care about this game. And from the moment that the doors opened until the moment that they closed on the last day of PAX, we were so busy at our booth, just lines and lines and lines of people and you know, every night, Adam, who's the lead designer, we were sharing an Airbnb. We would deliriously walk back to our Airbnb and we would sit on the balcony and have a beer and I would read out all of the articles that were coming through. And they were just these glowing reviews from people who really got it, you know, like they really saw yeah. what we were trying to say. And oh, it was also Daniel McMahon, who is our writer on the game, who just did an incredible job as as a writer, but also as a creative partner on the project and a (laughs) counsellor, you know, everything you could possibly need. He was there for us and he was much more experienced than all of us were. I'm hearing that
0: emotion bubbling over again. (laughs) I I can hear it.
1: He was so great. Uh, But it was also, he had sort of finished up his contract with us right before PAX and so he had never played the demo. So he had, the demo for us was not like, six months of polishing it was like it was done the day of PAX and so for the at PAX for the first time I got to see him play the game that he wrote and just kind of his face and watch his emotions and see him turn around afterwards and just look at me in the eye and say it's good and oh it was so special <laughs> so special
0: yeah I'm still I'm hearing all that emotion coming up now so <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to turn into a blubbering mess on the show so I'll, I'll give you a break there and we'll, we'll, we'll move on um Stepping away, so uh, at this point, and I alluded to it before. There's there's plenty of opportunities and experiences you've had, and you you stepped away from uh, from Robot House and Warga- uh, Sorry, and Hammerfall, and Third Sense was the next step. What was mm-hmm. it? What what was going through your head at the time when it came time to to move on, and how did the opportunity emerge in the first place?
1: Yeah, look, it was really really hard to leave robot house because you know as we've talked about i had so much emotional investment in that team and in the projects and in all the ideas that we had for the future but at the end of the day making rumu was really hard for me like it was a huge amount of time and energy and you know we're not just game developers and we're not just creative people we're human beings as well and i had just met my partner while we were making Rimu and I hardly saw him for sort of the first year that we dated because I was so busy trying to finish this game um and so it came a time where I was looking for a bit more work-life balance for myself and I was also looking I think for a challenge where I could be more involved in the business side of things um I've always had a dream of you know having my own company one day, having my own studio one day, you know, far in the future. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I needed to have more business experience. And so when the opportunity came up to work at Third Sense alongside some people who um, are incredibly accomplished when it comes to uh, doing business and building a business that can survive. Uh, So there was an opportunity to become the product director there, which was, a very senior position for someone with my level of experience and I knew that I'd get exposed to all kinds of things that I'd never been exposed to before and so kind of like moving to Brisbane to work in fashion it was one of those moments of I'm just gonna do this even Take though I'm leap. scared yeah <laughs> yeah so I did
0: and what were some of the big lessons that you learned from that time because it is very different all sure within the same industry but a very very different side of it what was what were some of the big things that you learned from that time because oh, it was about a year yeah. as I as I kind of look at my notes. It was it's about, about a, year a year or so that you were there.
1: Yeah, I learned so much in a really short period of time. I think, you know, there's all kinds of sort of maybe boring business things about like how to manage a multi-project studio when we yeah. have multiple clients and multiple internal projects happening at the same time. You know, how do you handle resourcing? And also, how do you handle, you know, team morale across multiple projects and cycling people in and out of things and kind of all the skills that you need to manage resourcing for a studio. Um, and I think one of the most exciting projects that I worked on there was this, uh, game called bring back the beat, which we worked yep. on with cochlea, which was all about hearing rehabilitation. So it was for, uh, recipients of cochlear implants, helping them learn to enjoy music again. Cause when you, uh, receive a cochlear implant the way that you hear music is different so genres that you might have enjoyed before sound different now and so how do you find music that you love we I mean, know music brings so much to our lives and so getting to be part of that process which was incredibly scientific you know working with
0: yeah I can imagine
1: a very research heavy company you know doing real user testing and going to things like morning teas with uh, senior cochlear implant recipients and just hearing about their lives and wh- where the music was a part of it and how they listen to music and their memories of music growing up and, you know, all of that was, yeah, really learning that the work of creating a product like that is quite a human experience. Uh, yeah. Definitely shaped the way that I think about making games.
0: Yeah. It would be a very challenging one in the sense that you can develop this, this game, this product, but, It'd be still, you can get all the, the information, all have all the research in front of you in the world, but you're still never going to quite be able to relate and understand what that experience is. And you're trying to project a little bit when you're doing that. And I must imagine that would have been really, really challenging for everyone involved.
1: I think so. I think it's a huge exercise in empathy. I think empathy gets thrown around a lot as like a product design buzzword. But- yeah this was a real exercise in, in building up empathy muscles for your users.
0: Well, you have to just by yeah by nature of what you're trying to create here is it's designed for a particular for a particular group of people that have a certain need and mm-hmm. one that you can't necessarily physically relate to. So you really have to try and get in there and understand and, and build that empathy, as you said. So it would be a really exciting, but also really scary and challenging sort of experience I'd imagine.
1: Yeah. And it was so creative as well. Um, Third Sense are really a business that kind of breaks down the barriers between disciplines. So I got to really get my hands dirty in quite a lot of design work and um, visual branding and art and just got to really try all kinds of different creative skills out uh, alongside some people who are very accomplished in their field. So it was a pretty wild experience.
0: And so next up, that le- and I guess it's kind of a far cry from what we've just discussed there and the sorts of products you're creating, <laughs> ne- the next step on the pathway, in terms of the development side, and I, I want to get to things like also working lunch and those sort of things shortly as well. Um, but next up on the actual development side of things is this, uh, a two-year, roughly two-year period with wargaming there, and yet very, very different to what we just discussed. So <laughs> how did that opportunity emerge? Uh luck involved you just meet the right people all those networks that you've you've developed over the years how did that opportunity first emerge because you're working in a product manager capacity
1: yeah i mean so i was doing product direction at third sense and much as we were working on games and gamification i sort of did miss working on a specific game project for an extended period of time yeah. In, in as much as any of the projects that I've been on, you could call an extended period of time, which is a lot of AAA people would laugh at me. Um, some people have been working on the same AAA game for my entire career. <laughs> so Yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but it feels um, like
0: a long time. It so,
1: feels like a long time when you're in it, for sure. And quite turbulent periods of time. And so I had no idea that, that Wargaming existed as a development studio in Sydney. I really had no concept of the fact that there were almost a hundred game developers working out of an actual studio, working on AAA games, 10 minutes up the road from my house, <laughs> because they were quite... Where have um... you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, they, they're they quite uh, removed, I think, from the community in Sydney, or they used to be. I think they're much more involved now. Uh, yeah. And so I didn't know that much about them. And then... I had a conversation with somebody where I learned that they were looking for someone in a product manager capacity to work on AAA games. And I had sort of written off the idea of ever getting to work in AAA because I love Sydney and I want to make Sydney a great place to make games. And so I don't really want to have to move countries to do that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and- there is
0: still that, the, the nature of the local industry by and large has been especially since the, the financial crisis of you know 2007 or thereabouts, it's all been kind of small-scale, independent-style products. And mm-hmm. so I, I could understand how you'd be going, I don't think that AAA opportunity is necessarily going to emerge until all of a sudden it's right there in front of you.
1: Yeah, it was really unexpected. And then I met with the product team at Wargaming and I was really impressed by them. Really sort of the most sophisticated production team that I'd ever interacted with in a professional setting and yeah I was really fortunate that they offered me the opportunity to join the team uh, and be part of this international co-dev on new IP and that's what I've been doing for the last the last few years yeah
0: and really exciting and some really fantastic challenges and as you said like your first chance to really dip your toe into AAA which would have been really really exciting as well Yeah,
1: terrifying but but also once I was there I realized actually this is awesome particularly for a producer because I think in a lot of indie teams as a producer you end up wearing so many hats like we've talked about you're doing marketing you're doing PR you're doing community management you're also doing production of the game and so you don't get a lot of time to go really deep into the the craft and the discipline of production And so that was really the luxury of AAA was that I got to focus on just honing my skills as a producer. And I'm very passionate about sort of the creative side of what it takes to be a producer and getting to focus on that and advocate for that and be part of a team that really respected that from from A to Z was so special.
0: And yeah, I'm struggling to kind of even grapple with a little bit given, yeah, the the many different hats that you've worn over the journey to then have a t- roughly two-year stint where you've been able to just completely dedicate yourself to one thing. Yeah. I mean, we were discussing before the recording that you know I'm, I'm a teacher and we're just getting kind of pulled aside left, right and centre at any given moment. The idea of just being able to focus on one thing seems like such a foreign idea to me. <laughs> um, to be able to do it for, for two years straight must have been fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was really special. I mean, I, I might be making it sound more peaceful than it was because at the end of the day, the thing I was focusing on was making a AAA game with two yep. teams that are on the opposite side of the world from each other. And Which so, definitely
0: presents its own challenges for sure.
1: <laughs> so it was definitely quite chaotic and being pulled in a lot of different directions, but in the best way, in, in a way that was really meaningful and had quite a lot of purpose to it. And I mean, the people that I got to work with at Wargaming are so experienced and are of such a high caliber and I feel like I am 20 times the producer after working with them than I was before.
0: That's great to hear. So most recently and the thing that's kind of served as the launch pad uh, for us to even start this conversation today is your newest role at Mighty Kingdom. That's February 2021 so a month ago roughly that we're (laughs) talking about here. Um, How did that opportunity emerge? And what was so enticing about it, given that you you were getting to kind of explore a side that you really wanted to for quite some time with Wargaming. Yeah. What was it about Mighty Kingdom that managed to steal your heart?
1: (laughs) Wargaming will always have part of my heart, but the Mighty Kingdom I've always admired and always had a lot of respect for. I mean, they're based in Adelaide, so I never really thought about it as somewhere that I would get to work, but I would often think things like... I would really like to work with people who have worked at Mighty Kingdom, if that makes sense, because I know that they have a great reputation for their culture and the inclusivity of the business. And I also know that they work on the kinds of products that I really care about. I mean, we were talking about The Sims, but, you know, a lot of the games that kind of shaped my early interest in not just in games, but in like computers and in, in like digital things as an idea for self expression where, you know, games like Barbie fashion designer and games like Mary Kate and Ashley magical mystery Mall, you know, like yep. all those kinds of games that are really like the, the late nineties games for girls era and mighty kingdom produces quite a lot of games that are ostensibly for girls and women. And, I've always wanted to work on games like that so it was a combination of the culture the people I have a lot of good friends who either have worked at mighty kingdom for a long time or have recently joined uh and the kinds of products that they make so it was kind of a really Too good to refuse irresistible combination of things that just became a possibility after covid when suddenly remote work was an option for so many studios
0: yeah that that is really i guess not that we want to Suggest that COVID has been good in any way, shape, or form. It's been a horrible, horrible thing, but it's it's created an opportunity for you here that may otherwise have been something you would have necessarily explored. Again, just based on the fact that you were really looking to to build up your presence within Sydney, um, all of a sudden this opportunity has really opened itself up to you, and I, I think probably COVID's the, the the only real way we could, I don't want to say thanks to COVID that sounds horrible but you know what you know what I mean it definitely has uh,
1: has really changed the way that we think about work and the workforce and so for that I'm really grateful
0: and so what's that adjustment been like for you going from working kind of in I guess you probably would have had some time to practice it a little bit with the the remote work situation we've had to do in the last 12 months but now the job, the job is a hundred percent remote what what's that adjustment been like so far Obviously, it's a very brief uh, stay at the company so far. What's it it been like?
1: I mean, I was 100% remote at Wargaming for the full last year. So I did not go into the studio at all from the first day that we kind of locked down. So I had to sort of develop a lot of skills and tools for doing game production remotely. And I actually found that I really like it. You know, I really like working from home. But I do also think that you know, there there are a lot of things that game teams do when it comes to production, that when you're all in the same place and when you've been doing things a certain way for an extended period of time, they kind of become just the things that you do and people stop questioning why are we doing it and how are we doing it and how can we make it better? And then when everyone went remote, meetings and the idea of video calls suddenly became this like hot topic of how can we have less meetings? and for producers, that's scary because- Oh, for sure. A lot of there's a, there's a degree of control <laughs> that yeah. comes with that. But it's also just the way that we interface with the team and you know, the way that we connect and the way that we plan requires meetings. And so having a bit more scrutiny around those things actually brings a lot more intentionality to the way that we do game production. And I love that. So I've really enjoyed it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So that is we we you know probably not in a position to dive too deeply into what the current project is with with Mighty Kingdom. So we'll kind of steer steer away from that. What I'd like to start discussing now is another really great passion of yours, the working lunch. Um, I I think I mean it's a fantastic fantastic um, initiative and program that you've got up and running with several really really fantastic people. I lo- i don't think I'm the right person to necessarily talk about this here. I'd love to just throw it to you to explain to anyone listening, we might have some uh, over- overseas listeners who aren't even familiar with the idea. So I'd love for you to just just tell me a lot about what the what the program is and how it works and what, what the goals are.
1: For sure. So Working Lunch is a social enterprise that I started way back when I was at Hammerfall, like quite early in my career. And it's all about creating opportunities for underrepresented genders in the industry. So we do all kinds of things. The core thing that we do is a mentorship program. So we have had chapters in Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, and Wellington in New Zealand. uh, And we've helped establish programs in other countries as well, uh, where it's essentially about pairing experienced people with less experienced people to help them propel their careers forward. We also have a series of workshops that we run throughout the year across all kinds of things from like context and communication to like salary negotiation and your rights at work and all that kind of good stuff that you need to know. So we do that and then we also do things like um, sponsorship for people to attend events or get training. So we help companies connect with people in need to create opportunities and kind of share the wealth. Uh, And, you know, one of the big things that we used to do before 2020 and now who knows what we'll do was <laughs> next exhibit which is a showcase of games made by underrepresented people and we used to put that on in the main concourse of PAX Australia kind of expose people to different kinds of games that they might not usually see in that setting
0: well who knows what's possible in that space so I mean as we it today pa- uh, the, the folks at PAX have decided to say that it's coming later this year now yeah. I don't know about you but I'm there's still a hint of just cynicism that comes with that for me and i i guess probably a lot of people are in the same boat given the last 12 months that we've all had but uh yeah i knows not sure that, that opportunity I'm, might I'm avail not, like itself.
1: chomping at the bit to be in a conference hall full of thousands yeah, of people thousands but... and <laughs>
0: thousands of people is <laughs> yeah. yeah it's going to take a little bit for i think all of us to get our heads around that idea let alone actually walking in and, and doing it but mm-hmm. i guess it's a nice thought in the in the back of the mind that there's a semblance of normalcy One just day, around the corner the potentially world will return to normal.
1: yeah
0: <laughs> but um the the whole working lunch idea was not something that i'd you know, i'd heard of for the longest time and then all of a sudden i just see little bits and pieces pop up in twitter feeds or, or whatever and this conversation about it, and it just grew and grew and grew and it's it's been really fascinating to look in from the outside as to what's what's been going on there, and you see little updates every now and then, whether it's something that you're saying or that uh, v- uh, we see you know the various mentees that have co- uh, that have been coming through the program as well. It's really really awesome what you and the team have been putting together there.
1: Thank you. I mean, it's been really special. I certainly never expected it to become as big as it is, and. It really, the idea started with, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I got so lucky early in my career to connect with some women who really took me under their wing and gave me opportunities and guidance. And I know that I'm extraordinarily privileged and I came into that position, you know, already kind of having a social brand and kind of being known. And so it was easier for me to connect with people. Leverage that a bit. Yeah, and also being like a white cis woman with access to things that other people don't have access to. And so... It was kind of like, how can we formalize that structure and make it a thing and give more people access to it? And the idea was that we were going to have like one lunch. (laughs) It was going to be a working lunch with like five people. And And now (laughs) it just kind of caught on. And I think that's not because our idea is anything special. It was really just because I think a lot of people wanted to help and needed an outlet to help people with and so we were just about facilitation and I think, yeah, that's what's really special about it is that we just have this community of people who want to help each other and want the industry to be a better place.
0: Yeah, and I mean one, one of the key things that I, and this is kind of my take from the outside, is there's obviously been, and you mentioned it at the beginning there, um, you know, mentorships for women or non-binary or uh, anyone that's basically... We we know what the demographic has been within the game development scene for a long, long time, um, and the idea that you and the team are looking to break that down in a way and just make the, like open things up for everyone, I think is just fantastic. I it was something I was even reflecting on as as I was putting everything together for the show today, and um, and just thinking about the program a little bit itself, and then kind of linking that to what I'm doing with this show, and I think about the the diversity that i've had on this show and I, I started i just ran some numbers and i maybe i just couldn't help myself i'm a math teacher but i started i started looking at kind of the breakdown of guests and like man the the the, the breakdown i've got here is sadly not that different to what we know exists in the industry and that's it's such a shame in a lot of different ways and it's, it's certainly something that even as i was thinking like okay i need to i need to do even more to try and and just find people and i guess i it, it, it's tricky um, and you just got to find a way. Um, but it's it's been fantastic to see from the outside what you and the team have been doing to empower more women to get into the industry and exp- explore this industry and try things and yeah, it's just been it's really, really awesome a, to see.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. It's really just been about trying to create support networks for people. You know, they they already have... Most of the mentees that we work with, Like they already have the skills and the talent and the tenacity and everything that they need. And most of what they need is support and confidence and people to give them access to some of that kind of insider information that not everybody gets access to when they're trying to break into the industry. And obviously we have, um, I think, a long way to go. There's a lot that I want to do with the Working Lunch and with other initiatives to expand on that work and try and make that kind of inside information, those resources, more accessible to a broader group of people, and so yes. I think it's it's always going to be a forever evolving, imperfect thing, but we yeah. just try and do what we can.
0: Well, I mean, to that point, and again, like I was, you know, I was talking about just as I saw it start to rise to prominence just via my social media interactions and those sorts of things, or you know, what I'd see pop up in my feed. Obviously, you've got the the, the pool of people that have worked with you in that mentor mentee capacity, but. There's a lot of other people that haven't been a part of that, and you can see like they're they're kind of looking across at what's what's going on and that's that's been empowering for them in a lot of ways. So whilst you're not necessarily working directly with certain people, it seems like it's having an effect regardless. and uh, to your point about kind of expanding and how you know the changing face of the working lunch over over time, it seems like it's already happening as far as what I, <laughs> I as far as what I can see.
1: That's so nice to hear. yeah, I think one of the most fun parts of working lunch is probably getting to go to events and talk with people about just the idea of mentorship and sponsorship and activism and organizing within your community and trying to give people the tools to build those things themselves you know I think one of the most rewarding things that we've been able to do is consult with people who are starting programs of their own in different countries and in different communities because you know the possibility of that and like the ripple effect of that is so exciting to me so whenever anybody wants to start a mentorship program a community group any kind of advocacy thing i'm always down to have a chat with them on zoom or or whatever just to talk through their ideas and teach them all of the um, mistakes that i made when i was trying to set up working lunch because it's not easy it's a lot of lot it's a lot of work and it's a lot of organizing but it's also not as hard as people think.
0: You yeah, know, one, think once once you break do down it. that first barrier, <laughs> yeah, I guess momentum starts to build up at that point. But to to that point, what sort of obstacles have you faced along the way? And obviously, you said some of them are probably mistakes, but I'm sure there's some external obstacles that you've had to contend with over the journey as well. Um, what have you had to What have you had to face so far?
1: So many things. So I think the the first obstacle that we'd never expected with working lunch was that we had to convince people that they were good enough to be mentors. And so a lot of the start of the working lunch was learning how to have that conversation with somebody, especially when it's somebody who you admire and respect and who seems so accomplished and, and so confident and powerful and kind of having to teach them about what they can give. And so that's a lot of the conversations that I have is uh, helping people recognize their own value and their own worth and what they can do to support the people around them um so there's that in the, side se- of it. In the
0: sense that and sorry as i'm trying to just extrapolate that in my head so in the sense that um like you're fantastic at what you do but you could potentially do xyz on top of that to mm-hmm. is that is that kind of where we're going yeah like
1: hey i know the idea of like mentoring a young underrepresented person is really scary because there's a lot of responsibility associated with it. You're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have all the tools and you can't make this person's life perfect because like your rote into the industry is probably weird and crooked and doesn't exist anymore and all of those things. Yeah. Um, So just kind of talking people through what they can do to help people around them, because it's never as, uh, as cut and dried as I think The idea of mentorship is people think they have to be this perfect person who has the answer to everything and at the end of it you can give someone a perfect job but it's never going to be like that it's really just humans talking to humans
0: yeah Uh, mistakes get made we learn from mistakes and we try and better ourselves in the process
1: absolutely so so that aspect of it the the human aspect of it is really tricky i think also there are just a lot of logistics (laughs) that that i didn't expect going into working lunch when you scale from having one chapter of people in your city to having chapters of people all over two countries there's a lot of extra work that you need to do (laughs) (laughs) and so that aspect of it and, and kind of learning how to let go of some parts of it as well and how to take feedback i think was really tricky because Cooking lunch was really my baby and it was something I was so passionate about. And I think when you have a bit of success with something, it becomes really difficult to hear critical things about it. And so then when we did get feedback on how the program could be more inclusive and how it could change, it was hard for me personally, you know, because I think that there's this great Harvard Business Review article that's called um, Finding the Coaching and Criticism. And it talks about how one of the triggers for people to not receive feedback well is when it calls into question how you see yourself and your identity. And okay. it, that definitely happened for me with working lunch. I felt like when people were critical of working lunch or when they had suggestions for how it could change, it felt like they were critical of me as a person, um, which is not their fault, but it was yeah. it was because I loved it so much. And so I had to learn how to take feedback and how to grow you know, my own intersectional feminism, but also how to grow the program and let it scale beyond me as a person. And that's been a that's really That's scary. It's so scary, but it's so rewarding. Because once once it can do that, then it can grow exponentially.
0: Yeah, and there's there's so much you'll be able to look upon proudly when it comes to it uh, as it continues to grow and grow and grow. And I guess the the argument could be made that if it remained this contained Sydney or just even Australia wide thing there could be the question down the line is like, what if, what if, you know, what potential could there have been? What have we left on the table here? And it's quite clear from what I'm seeing and what you've described for me as well, that that, that question's not going to come up. It's, <laughs> I it's, it's so. growing its own legs and, it, and, you know, by by placing that, that faith and trust in other people in these other chapters around both countries, uh, it seems like it's in really good hands with you, with you in your position at the top, but everyone else just, do it, taking it and running with it, and it yeah I you know, mean ultimately so we just
1: want to make it accessible to everybody so all of the work that we've been doing over the last year which has been you know pretty quiet and behind closed doors but we'll start talking about more soon has really been about how can we make something that people can just pick up and run with rather yeah. than uh, like me having to facilitate something or someone on our team having to oversee and approve things it's really like how can we, but take this knowledge and these resources and make it free and accessible to as many people as possible.
0: Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm really keen to see where it all develops from there. Um, the idea of you know, what's next is for, for, uh, for the working lunch as well as everything else within your career is I, I think a question a lot of us will be asking for a while because you've, you're really ambitious you, what you, from what I see, what you go out and set, set your mind to. You just achieve. It's it's really it's really fantastic to see, uh, really, really fantastic to see, and I'm I'm keen to see what comes next in both of those spaces.
1: Thank you. Me too. <laughs> uh,
0: so as we begin to wind things down, we'll cycle a little bit back more to you specifically. Anyone out there that really inspires you in particular that you've worked with or that you've looked at from a distance you've never had the opportunity to work with. So far, in, in any capacity, and that can obviously relate to the more development side of things or within that working lunch sphere as well. Um, is there anything that you really look at that has inspired you or continues to inspire you?
1: Oh, there are so many people. Um, for me, I mean, Siobhan Reddy is a really big one for me. Um, oh, Media
0: Molecule? Yep.
1: Media Molecule, yeah. Siobhan, so when I was working at Wargaming, our UK studio was based in Guildford, which is also where Media Molecule is. at so spot I got to, yeah, big hotspot. So I got to hang out with Siobhan and and get to know her a little bit. And she's become such an important person for me, that person that I run my decisions by and <laughs> that I parrot phrases that she says to me to other people to sound wise. <laughs> she's it's, she's she, your mentor in she's, a lot of ways. I mean, she's prolific and she also, I think, embodies a kind of compassionate, empathetic, creative leadership that really comes from a place of kind of wanting to, I think, and I don't want to speak for her, but the impression I get is that she wants to dismantle kind of the traditional frameworks of the games industry that have produced a certain kind of person and a certain kind of product and really free people to express themselves through not just the product, but the way that we make the product. And uh, as a producer, that's very inspiring.
0: That, uh, I mean, I've never had the luxury of talking to Siobhan so far, but everything I see and read and hear, everything you've said there just seems to fall under this umbrella, what I'd kind of associated with Siobhan up to this point. And, oh, she's um, just it's just spectacular
1: to hear. and such a, such a powerhouse and so wise, so, so wise.
0: No, that, that's fantastic. Um I feel like we've kind of answered this one a lot uh, through our various uh, discussions so far, but what have been some of the most valuable lessons and experiences you've picked up along the way?
1: um,
0: Are there any in particular that really stick out to you?
1: I think the thing that I tell a lot of people and I think about a lot is that when you start out in games, it feels like it's this endless cascade of experiences and people and companies and this huge open world and in many ways it is but at the same time the people that you meet when you start in the industry are the same people that you're going to be talking to having drinks with seeing at events working with for your whole career and I wish I'd known that (laughs) but also (laughs) but also that's one of the best things about it is the the friendships and the experiences and the highs and lows that you go through together. Uh, that's one of the best parts of working in games and I think it's one of the parts that sometimes is undervalued. You know the the friendships and the human connection of creating these things together.
0: It's certainly something within my little sphere of it and more on the the commentary side of the industry I suppose. It's something I didn't necessarily expect when i first did and i guess because the role has essentially always been remote like even within my player two team locally that like we're scattered all across australia and those sort of things but you get those opportunities whether it's a whether it's a pax or you know we have a i mean we'll have the the 24-hour charity marathon every year and we get a small subset of the team together not last year but um we'll we'll get people together and it's just these relationships and friendships that you formed over over something that seems so trivial, trivial in in some ways with video games that they're there for life. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I think similarly as well. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but the the lesson that I always come back to and that I always kind of remind myself of is just move towards that which you love, because yep. for me, I think i think a lot of people have this experience particularly working in kind of production or management or direction type of roles it can be very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of admin and management and the kinds of tasks that are maybe less inspiring and so making the decision to you know dedicate time to feeding your soul with the work and also you know not being afraid to take the leap towards the exciting thing that is calling you is definitely what I've done a lot and I don't regret any of it
0: no I wholeheartedly agree with that with that thinking myself so some I guess slightly curlier looser more relaxed questions as we start to wrap things up (laughs) if you could be credited for any game that's ever that's ever released in any capacity it doesn't matter big or small what game would it be Firewatch Oh yes, yeah, so you're not the first person to have raised that game in this one. It's I, I think Watch that is might the perfect actually game.
1: It's just the perfect game. There's nothing wrong with that game. It's perfect.
0: <laughs> it might be tied with Bioshock now. I, not that I've been running a tally, and maybe I should. I retroactively go back and work all these out. But I think those two, uh, alongside Bioshock, might be sitting on atop the most cited game so far. So
1: it's the perfect game.
0: It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, um, I, I would love to have worked on that in any way, and I still. I frequently replay it and just marvel at the, the tiny, tiny thoughtful details and the the beauty in its execution and the performance, the art direction, the game design. I mean, it's at the music, it's stunning.
0: What well, Campo Santo did was amazing. So, um, and I'd actually yeah, somewhat recently had been thinking about going back and playing it myself. And you've probably ensured that that's going to be the case now. So I'll just have to you can play you out a it on the Switch and, now and make it happen. So. Um, <laughs> It's a, yeah, it's a wonderful title. Similar style question. If you could just wipe your memory of any one game and just get to re-experience it completely fresh, what would it be?
1: This is such a normie answer, but it probably <laughs> Breath of the Wild, because oh, okay. the first time I played that game was just like... It all-consuming, totally absorbed me. I mean, the the opening of the game where you kind of emerge from the cave and you see the old man, you walk towards the old man, but before you make it there, you see the tree with the apple. And if you climb to the apple, then you can look over the cliff and see. Yep. I mean, it's just like, Jesus, like it makes me so mad how good it is. It's, <laughs> it's infuriating.
0: <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a weird one for me because I mean, similar to yourself, like I you know, loved Zelda from, from the moment I first played Link to the Past as a whoa, three or four year old, I think. Um, but and for some reason, Breath of the Wild hasn't quite clicked with me in the, in the same way. I, I think it's maybe some of those stamina bits and pieces that just haven't quite worked with me. But I cannot argue that feeling that, that you just described there. Like It is just one of the most exhilarating moments when you you first – and this world is just completely available to you and you can just go and explore it however which way you might want. It's- the,
1: just the idea – when I imagine what the perfect – game development experience is and I don't know anything about what it was like to work on the game and I don't want to know because it would ruin it for me it might, but, might, but, yeah it
0: might tarnish you.
1: <laughs> when I think about it just to work on a project where you can put so much faith in the quality of your systems design and in the depth of the world that you've created that you feel no desire to hold the player's hand in any way that you can just set people loose and say, you know what, you'll figure it out. I trust you. That's that is perfect to me. That's perfect. It,
0: it's in part what makes the sequel, whenever that eventually releases, so fascinating because I just <laughs> wonder if if it's possible to replicate that feeling. Whether you even want to necessarily replicate that feeling, I don't um, know.
1: Hey, I just played Immortals: Phoenix Rising, um, oh yeah. which you know is a very similar kind of game, but yeah. probably with less depth. It's to a bit more it. handholdy. Yeah. But, you know, when I first started playing it, I probably spent the first couple of hours thinking, okay, yeah, Breath of the Wild, I see it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But then I kind of got sucked into this, you know, totally different layer that this world had. The the storytelling, the humour of it, the levity, like it was just so beautiful and fun and sweet and like Saturday morning cartoon style game. Um, And the systems, even though they were less... Uh, rich, I think, than Breath of the Wild was. It all kind of worked. So in in yep. a way, it's kind of given me more faith that like even if they go in a slightly different direction, and even if it's not like the masterpiece that Breath of the Wild yep. was, you're probably still going to love it.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, actually, um, you mentioned Immortals. Immortals is the game that's made me reconsider going back to Breath of the Wild and just seeing yeah. if maybe maybe I just played it at a bad time or something like that because. I, like you, I fell in love with Immortals at the end of the year last year. It was one of those ones I just toppled completely down the well. Um, the timing for it was perfect because our, at, I guess at the time she would have been about two months old. Little daughter, I've just got strapped to my chest all the time, so I'm just <laughs> kind of bouncing around to keep her asleep. But I'm playing Immortals and I, I end up getting the platinum in like 50 hours and played the game in an entire week. Not something that I'd norm- I'll would i get to do these days. But <laughs> it came on at <laughs> I mean- just the right time was the perfect fit and it, it made me think, oh, maybe maybe I need to give Breath of the Wild a second chance. It's a very,
1: um, yeah, It's it, Phoenix is great and I would encourage everyone to play it. It's, it's so fun and I think it's just one of those things you can pick up and play for 15 minutes or 15 hours. And,
0: and be completely satisfied with yeah, every bit of your time. So, so nice. So as we wrap things up, social media. Where would people be best to go if they wanted to See what you're up to. Get in touch. Learn more about what's going on uh, Mighty Kingdom as well. Working lunch. There's so many, so many different things here. So I might just, <laughs> I might just throw it over to you. And just please, where, where, where's the best place for people to go to kind of learn about what you're up to?
1: For sure. If you want to know what Working Lunch is up to, you can go to our website, which is workinglun.ch. <laughs> and then you can also find us on Twitter, which is working lunch. Uh, if you search Working Lunch, you'll be able to find us. Uh, and if you want to see what I'm up to various photos of my dog and food that I cook <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram under it's a cute dog
0: really Ali cute McLean
1: dog. Games uh, Yes, Mavis, she's a French bulldog she's an absolute star uh, and I'm also on Twitter under the same handle Ali McLean Games So make sure Games. to
0: check all of those out because yeah as we said if nothing else the dog's adorable so they're <laughs> w- w- worth the follow for n- if no other reason than that but it's really fantastic things that you'll you'll share um you've even been quite active into the last few days with quite some really deep fascinating thoughts on kind of the industry which you know I, I try to you know take in and consume and really process properly as well as i'm sure a lot of other people are so really really awesome insight and this is obviously just my own perspective here uh, listeners but uh really really awesome insights that you're sharing just on social media alone so go go check ellie out there because i think you'll have a good time
1: oh thanks paul
0: thank you so much for coming aboard the show today and sharing your story and experiences and um i mean you you, we mentioned before that you know some people have spent more time working on one game than you've spent in the industry so far but (laughs) you've done so much with that time so far and it's I feel like you know it could be a couple of years, and I think I might need to tap you on the shoulder to see if you come back on because, God knows, how many other stories you'll have to share at that particular point, and it'll be—we could record another hour plus just based on that alone. So, um, it's incredible what you've done so far. I can't wait to see what's next, and I'm so thankful you came on uh, came on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Paul. Loved it.
0: Uh, and listeners, as always, thank you much for listening. I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at PaulJamesGames on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, it's been Ali's story. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time.